I, I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning on a subject. I'm, I'm going to use it a, a question for my title, Where's God? You know, you get that a lot. In fact, uh, right before the first service this morning, Brother Ray Baird said to me, you know, why is it that people in, uh, especially unbelievers in times like this, they'll throw stuff at you if they're kind of, you know, antagonistic towards Christianity. They'll say, all right, where's God? Where's your God in all of this? Well, uh, we're going to talk about that this morning. Where is God? My text is an Old Testament verse of Scripture found in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Most of you are familiar with it. The very first part of the 27th verse says, the eternal God is our refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. The eternal God is our refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Read that with me. It's on the screen. Let's say it together. The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. To answer the question, where is God, is pretty simple because God is omniscient. That's one of the characteristics of God. And God is omnipresent, the characteristic of God. That means God is everywhere. So you don't have to go far to find God. God is everywhere. That's what omnipresence means. God's omnipresent. God's omniscient means he knows everything. And God is omnipotent. That means God is all-powerful. He's supreme. He is, he is God. He is God. Now, <clears throat> the fact that God is omnipresent or everywhere also leads me to uh, say to you, because a lot of people are concerned about this, there's a difference between the presence of God and the manifest presence of God. And uh, that's what people most, uh, most of the time are longing for or looking for, and that's the manifest presence of God. God is everywhere. However, there are times and places that God makes himself known or manifests himself in such a way that we can see it and know it. We know that's God. He's there. And we love those times of the manifest presence of God. But I want to tell you, whether God is manifesting his presence or not, God is there. God is there. I'm, I'm going to look into Scripture. And first of all, um, I, just locate God in a few places where he manifests his presence. One is the, the mountains or mountain tops. Um, God is on the mountains. In fact, more than 300 times in Scripture... The Bible talks about God being on a mountain or God being on a mountaintop. Many of the miracles of God take place in the Scripture. We find them on mountaintops. And we, we refer to our experiences sometimes like a mountaintop experience. Anybody like those times when you really just, you feel like you're so close to God, you're on top of a mountain, you could just, it's almost like you could just reach out and touch him. You, you just... You sense the, the, the manifest presence of God. Well, it was on a mountain that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, Mount Sinai. Um, it, was, uh, it was at Mount Carmel that God answered a 63-word prayer from Elijah and manifest his presence with fire 
on the altar. You remember that story when the prophets of Baal came together and Elijah challenged them. He said, if Baal's God, then we'll serve Baal. But let's, let's make sure we know who's God here. If God's God, if God Jehovah is God, then let, why don't we serve him? You ought to serve the right God. Amen. And, and so they built an altar and put a sacrifice on it and, uh, and uh, let the prophets of Baal go first. And they prayed and sought their God to send down fire and consume the sacrifice. Nothing happened. They, they cried out to God, to their God, Baal, almost all day. They went into a frenzy. They cut themselves. They screamed. They hollered. And, and Elijah kind of taunted them a little bit. He said, maybe you need to pray a little louder. Maybe your God's asleep. Or maybe your God's gone on a journey. And, and, and they just worked themselves into a frenzy trying to contact their God. But Baal did not answer because Baal was not God. And then after everybody, after they'd finished all their time, and, and like I said, Elijah gave them first shot at it. Then Elijah said, and they had gotten so carried away that they'd jumped up and down on the altar and everything else. And so they had to kind of rebuild things. And then Elijah said, dig a great big trench around this altar. And they dug a trench around the altar. And he said, pour water on the sacrifice. And they poured water on it. He said, pour some more water on it. And they poured some more. Pour it again. He, he had them pour water on it several times. And he poured water on the sacrifice until the water ran down and filled those trenches that he built around them. And then he backed off <laughs> and prayed 63 words. And God, wow, came down with fire and consumed the sacrifice and lapped up the water and actually burned up the altar with the fire of God. That's the manifest presence of God. Amen. So God does a lot of things in Scripture on the mountains. It was at Mount Horeb that Moses encountered God in a burning bush. And it was on Mount Nebo that Moses was able to look over into the promised land that God was going to give to the children of Israel. And it was on Mount Moriah that Abraham came to sacrifice his son Isaac. Remember that story? God had said to Isaac, I'm, I'm going to see if you really trust me here, uh, Abraham. Uh, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and, and go to a mountain. I'll show you which mountain. And God showed him. It was Mount Moriah. said, I want you to go up there and offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham climbed that old mountain and uh, built an altar and stretched out his son on the altar. His son had asked him before that. He said, Dad, I don't understand. I said, he said, I see you've got the wood for the, for the altar, and I see you've got the fire for the sacrifice, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham, for a short moment, became a prophet of God, and he made this statement. He said, son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And you know the rest of the story. Abraham put his son on that altar and lifted the knife to take his life. And the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, over there in the thicket, God has provided for you a ram. Don't kill Isaac. God sees that you trust him. And so he took Isaac off of the altar and went over and got the lamb and offered him as a sacrifice. But not only did he have a prophecy that came true, a short-term prophecy, God will provide a, a sacrifice. God did. He provided a ram. In fact, I believe it's like this. I believe as Abraham was going up one side of Mount Moriah, God had the sacrifice coming up the other side. 
You see, God has your needs supplied before you ever get to it. Amen? We don't see it many times, and it can really cause us a lot. But God's never late. He's always right on time. Amen? And and so he had the sacrifice. But not only was that a short-term prophecy and one that was fulfilled immediately, but it was also a long-term prophecy. Because when Abraham said God will provide himself a sacrifice, that's exactly what Jesus, uh, what God did with Jesus several thousand years later, right in that very area on that same mountain range was a hill called Calvary where Jesus was offered as a sacrifice of the sins of the world. Some historians believe it was the very same mountain. I don't know, but I know it was close. And, uh, and so what a marvelous prophecy. And so we see God on the mountains. But I'm so glad that God is not just on the mountains, aren't you? Because we don't stay on the mountaintop all the time. But at least I don't. If, if, if you do, you're the exception to the rule. Most people that I see have had these mountaintop experiences, but you don't live on the mountaintop. You, you have to come down. By the way, the very fact that there is a mountain means there's some valleys, right? Mountains create them. And you've heard me preach this before. In fact, we had it on a marquee when we were over on Wheeler Road. I preached this sermon one Sunday morning, and, and, and I said, I made this statement, and they took it and put it on a marquee out there. It said, I, I said, it, when you're in a valley, you're just changing mountains, The fact is you can't get from this mountain to that mountain without going through a valley. And when a shepherd leads his sheep through the valley, he is in the process of taking them to another mountain. He can't get there without coming down off of this one, going through the valley and getting up on the next one. But he's looking for greener pastures. He's looking for more water. And so you go through the valley. And that's, David said, I'm not going to fear any evil whatsoever because the shepherd that leads me through the valley, even if it's the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to be afraid of anything because he's with me. The shepherd's with you through the valley. So he's God in the valley, just like he's God on the mountaintops. I was listening to a song today by the McCameys. He's the God of the valley. Amen. Not just on the mountaintops, but he takes you right through the valley. In fact, when you study scripture about a hundred times, uh, it refers to God in the valley. And I'm not going to go through a lot of those, but one of my favorites found in Second Chronicles chapter 20, when there was a great valley where the children of Israel were confronted by major armies that were bigger than them and more powerful than them and had set on their destruction and it was intended by Satan to be the valley of their destruction and God turned it in to a valley of blessing. In fact, God even renamed it the valley of blessing, gave it a Hebrew word. That means a valley of blessing. And can I just sidetrack a moment to make an application this morning and say to you, my friend, if you're going through a valley, the enemy may have set on you to destroy you, but if you'll stay close to the shepherd, he will turn that valley into a blessing and give you the victory, even in the valley. Amen. Amen and amen. In fact, 
a beautiful poetic scripture that I just love is found in Song of Solomon. In chapter 2, verse 1, it, it's, a, it's a typology of God himself. And he says, I'm the rose of Sharon and I'm the lily of the valleys. Praise the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? God's in the valley. It, it, he's like a lily in the valley. You, you won't find that lily growing on the mountaintop, but you will in the valley. And he's there with you. Well, not only is God the God of the mountains and God is the God of the valleys, and I want to sort of key in. This is my message for you this morning. God's also in the storms. He's in the storms. Let me read you from Matthew chapter 14, perhaps the most well-known storm that's mentioned in the New Testament. I'll read verses 22 to 36. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. Now, let me stop here. I'm, I'm going to kind of uh, make some comments as I read through this. Let me give you the background of this. Jesus had just finished feeding the multitude with the loaves and fishes. Remember that story in the Bible? He took five loaves and two fish. And he fed over 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. That crowd could have been 20,000 or more. And Jesus fed them with five loaves and two fish. After everyone had eaten until they didn't want any more to eat, he told the disciples to take up what was left over. And there were 12 baskets full of fragments that were left over from that meal. Then Jesus said to his disciples, we cleaned up everything here. We're ready to go now. I want you to go ahead of me to the other side. I'll meet you over there later, and we're going to minister. In other words, we're going to take this evangelistic crusade to the other side of this little sea. There's a village over there in Gennesaret. We're going to, we're going to minister there. And while they proceed, Jesus then continues to minister and finishes up his ministry with this crowd of people. I don't know how long that took. But I'm assuming that it was somewhere in the early afternoon when all of this was wrapped up, the disciples have left, and Jesus disperses the crowd, dismisses them, and sends them home. The reason I'm sure that it was probably early afternoon is because Jesus was always concerned with people. Remember, in fact, he was concerned about the crowd because they'd been following him for three days, and he wanted to make sure they had something to eat. And that's when the disciples said, we don't have enough money to buy enough food for this crowd. Why don't you just send them home? And Jesus said, well, I'm concerned that if we just send them home, they may faint by the wayside. You know, some of them have come a pretty long ways. So I'm sure that Jesus dismissed this crowd early enough for them to make it back to their homes before it was dangerous to travel. They didn't have all the, you know, the special kind of lights that you can order from QVC uh, in those days, you know. They, uh, they, they, they had to get home while it was daylight. So early afternoon, the crowd is dispersed and the disciples go their way preparing to go to the other side. They're making evangelistic trip now with Jesus. And the, I don't know how long they'd planned to be gone. Perhaps Jesus told them all of that. But I think the disciples, I don't think they just left there, jumped in a boat and headed to the other side. 
it certainly would not have taken them that many hours to get across to the other side. And there is a time limit, a time um, affixed in this story that helps us kind of see what was going on. Here's what I think happened. I think, you know, the Bible can't, doesn't give you all the details of everything. I think what happened when Jesus said, I want you guys to go to the other side, I think the disciples went home. Many of these guys are married, had families, went home, took care of everything they needed to take care of, got everything together that they needed to go to the other side. And sometime uh, later on that night or perhaps even after midnight, maybe in the early hours of the morning, they started their journey across to the other side. Now, so, so you've got where, where the disciples are. Here's where Jesus went after he dispersed the crowd in the early afternoon. Look at verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. So Jesus leaves in the early afternoon when he dispersed the crowd, and he climbs this mountain to spend some time with his heavenly father. Talking about a mountaintop experience. Jesus is there communing with his heavenly father. Now, um, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, that's, this is where we get the time fixture here. The fourth watch was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. New days, uh, a new period of time starts uh, in a watch at 6 a.m. So somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus, who is on a mountain praying, looks out across. And, and you remember... Uh, when you're on a mountaintop, boy, you can see a long ways. That's one of the good things about mountaintop experiences. It helps your vision. You can see. You get a panoramic view, boy, on a mountaintop. I remember when I was a little boy, some, some of y'all may remember this. Boy, Chattanooga, Tennessee had lots of advertisement many years ago. You remember that? Boy, you'd see um, barns had roofs painted Sea Rock City. You remember anybody here old enough to remember that? Oh, yeah, a few of us. Uh, and and uh, one, one of the things that they would advertise is how many states you could see from Chattanooga, a lookout mountain. They call it Lookout Mountain. You get on Lookout Mountain, and they got these, these uh, scopes that you can look in and see, and, and they say you can see, I think it's seven states that you can see on top of that mountain. So you can see a long ways. Jesus is on a mountain, and he can see. The vista is large. Four miles away on the Sea of Galilee are the disciples, and he sees them. Not, not just with his natural vision. I'm sure he also sees with spiritual vision what's going on. There's a sudden storm that was not unusual in that day in that place because of the geographic locations. Many times on that little sea, storms would arise suddenly. And so suddenly there came a storm that hit the disciples in their boat somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it is a ghost. Now, that's emphasized with an explanation point, but you probably don't read it like it really happened. Think about it like this. The disciples are in the boat. They're in a storm. 
and they see Jesus. Now, they don't know it's Jesus. They thought it was a ghost. You say, well, preacher, they walked and talked with Jesus. Why didn't they recognize him? Well, let me tell you why they didn't recognize him. They'd never seen him walk on water before. And I doubt any of us have seen him walk on water. And, 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 and so they thought, I mean, just natural progression of thinking, they just thought it was a ghost. Now, here's why it terrified them so. There was an old wives' tale that went about in that day that said, and they probably heard this from the time they were kids until they were grown, like some of the things we hear that are just, you know, old wives' tales. The story was that if you saw a ghost in a storm, that that meant you were going to die. That, that's the word that went out. So how would you react if you're in a storm fighting with the oars of the boat, trying to pull on, pull on the, the sails or whatever, and you're, trying to, you're just trying to save your life, and you look out and you see it. somebody out there walking, you think it's a ghost, and they cried out, it's a ghost! It scared them, terrified them. And so Jesus responds to them immediately by saying, look at what he said. They cried out, it's, it goes, they cried out in fear or for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, and I'm sure he hollered this back to them very loudly, be of good cheer in his eye. Do not be afraid. Can I stop here long enough this morning to take a little sidetrack? And say to those of you that are going through a difficult time in life right now, you may be going through a spiritual storm. And it may be the biggest storm you've ever gone through in your life. These words are still applicable this morning to your situation just like they were to the disciples. Don't you be afraid today. Don't you be afraid. If you're in a storm, don't you be afraid. Don't you let fear get a hold of you. Jesus is there. He is there. Don't, don't fear. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. Jesus is there. Well, uh, then this is where we get that story of Simon Peter. He always had something to say. Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the waters. So Jesus said, come on. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, we criticize sometimes the uh, old Simon Peter because of what happened right after that. And, and, uh, but, but think about this for a minute. You got 12 disciples. Peter was the only one that had the nerve, or shall I say the faith, to come climbing over the side of that boat and go walking on the water. 11 of them didn't dare try it. They did. They're staying. They're staying in the boat. This next part, I see a lot of humor in Scripture, and this to me is one of the funniest passages. It talks about Simon Peter. Look at verse thirty. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Cried out, saying, "Lord, save me!" Let me tell you why this is funny to me. You, you know, fear is often irrational. If you've ever dealt with fear, you, you, you know that. You understand it. Fear doesn't always make sense. Here's what's so irrational about that. Simon, here's Simon Peter. He's climbed out of the boat. He's walking on the water. 
I mean, folks, if that isn't supernatural, I don't know what is. If you don't believe that's supernatural, go up to Lake Thurman and try it this afternoon. <laughs> he is walking on the water, and suddenly it dawns on him that the wind is boisterous. And so he gets afraid and begins to sing. And here's why that's funny to me. I'm thinking, come on, Simon. Do you think you could walk on the water if it was calm? <laughs> I mean, he's walking on the water. That's supernatural. But when he realizes that the waves are really, because the wind is really up, he suddenly thinks, oh, my goodness, the wind's blowing really hard. The waves are really big. And he starts to sink. My goodness alive. Listen, he couldn't have walked on the water if it had been as placid as a slee of glass. But that's the way fear is. It's very irrational. But thank the Lord. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those that were with him in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding regions, brought to him all that were sick, and begged him that he might, they might touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfect, perfectly well. Isn't that a beautiful story? I love the ending, don't you? I, I love the ending. In fact, I don't know how many times I had read that and how many years I had read it before it suddenly jumped off of the page at me that all these people touched the hem of the garment of Jesus and were healed. In fact, it said as many of them as touched the hem of his garment. We typically think that that little woman with the issue of blood was the only one that ever touched the hem of the garment of Jesus and got healed. No, no, no. In fact, it could have been this story that she heard that gave her the faith to believe that if she could touch the hem of his garment, that she would be healed. But anyway, in that city, everybody, everybody that touched the hem of the garment of Jesus could be healed. Glory to God. Let, let me just stop right here and say this morning, there may be somebody in the crowd today if you just touch the hem of his garment. If you, if you just touch the hem of his garment, you could be healed. Well, let me get back to, let me get back to what I'm talking about in the storm, and, and I'm going to wrap this up real quickly. I just want to give you five things from this story that I think are applicable to this thing of storms, and we're facing storms right now both in the physical, the natural, and also in the spiritual five things I want you to get from this story. Number one, I want you to understand that Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. Remember Jesus was up on that mountain praying four miles down there in the river or the lake rather. The, they call it a sea where the disciples on a boat fighting a storm. Jesus saw them. I want you to know this morning, and, and there may be some people under the sound of my voice today, you're going through a storm. It may be the storm of your life. It may be the most difficult time that you've ever dealt with. You may be struggling in a storm of your life, and it feels like at times you're not going to make it, and you're holding on until you're white-knuckled, and, and you, you just you don't know what to do. I want to. You may feel like there's nobody in this world that understands how you feel, and you may be absolutely 
absolutely right. There may not be another person in this world that understands exactly how you feel today. There may not be anyone else who understands what you're going through or the difficulty that you feel or the struggle that you're fighting with on the inside of yourself this morning. But I want to promise you on the authority of God's Word that Jesus sees you. The Scripture says we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but he was tempted in all points like as we and yet without sin. What the Scripture is saying this morning is that Jesus sees you. He does. He sees you right where you are in your storm. Which brings me to the second thing that I want you to understand. If Jesus sees you, Jesus will come to you. Amen. He will. He will. He may not get there when you think he should, but I'll guarantee you he'll be on time. He's never late. He'll be there. Jesus saw them, and Jesus came to them walking on the water. Glory to God. He will come to you. In fact, we have this promise in God's Word. Jesus himself declared, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will go with you all the way even to the end of the world. That's a promise of Jesus. He did not say, I will never leave you except when you're in a storm. No, 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 no. He didn't qualify it with anything. So he is with you. He will come to you right where you are if you're in the storm. Now, the next thing, Jesus sees you, Jesus will come to you, and then he will minister to you. And that's what he did for these disciples. He ministered to him. He used Simon Peter as an example to teach them something about faith. Man, Simon Peter, as long as he had his faith and his eyes on Jesus and didn't allow fear to creep in and didn't allow doubt to creep in and didn't allow... Uh, you know, all this distraction to get to him when he focused until it was faith, pure faith and nothing but faith locked in the eyes of Jesus Christ, he could do anything. He could walk on water. And Jesus took some time to minister. So in, in your situation, it just could be that the reason your storm has not yet ceased is because you haven't learned all that Jesus wants to teach you in this storm. Because Jesus never wastes an opportunity to teach us something. How many have, have learned things in hard times in life? Anybody here? Yeah, yeah. You, God's taught you some things. When you, when you went through struggles, when you went through tests and trials, those, those are the times that you really learn from the Lord. And, and, and they strengthen your faith. And you, you grew exponentially as you looked at him. Jesus will minister to you. Then... The next thing I want you to understand is that Jesus will see you through the storm. He, he's, he'll see you through it. You remember, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but I'll go with you all the way even to the end. Jesus has committed himself to be with you all the way through the storm and get you out on the other side of the storm with victory, 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 victory. I want to tell you with assurance this morning... If you've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, you're a child of the King, you are going to arrive safely on the shores of sweet deliverance. Praise God. <laughs> yes, go ahead and give him praise for that. 
You may be in the storm of your life, but I can guarantee you, I can promise you on the authority of the Word of God this morning, you are going to make it through the storm because He's with you. He's going to get you to the other side. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. And then finally, there's life after the storm. There's life after this. Sometimes storms are pretty devastating. They take their toll. A lot of people lose a lot of stuff. Boy, I was trying to grasp the magnitude of some of these storms that are happening around us right now. In Houston, for example, right now over 200,000 homes destroyed. Can, can you imagine that number? That's good night. That's almost the size of the city of Augusta. Completely destroyed houses. 200,000 of them going to have to be pushed over. Over a million automobiles destroyed. Over a million automobiles destroyed. In fact, I was talking to my insurance agent this week, and he said in some states right now, they're so bombarded and overwhelmed some insurance companies won't even write any insurance right now. I mean, they're just, they're just bogged down with all of the claims that are coming in. Over a million automobiles, 200,000. And that's that storm. And then we got this other storm that's just ripped up through the Caribbean and, and, and now about to hit shore here. And, 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 and we, we don't know what the devastation of that was going to be. I, I don't know. There is a lot of loss. But here's what I do know this morning, church, is that life is more than stuff. In fact, the Word bears that out. I think it's Luke 12, 15 says, Life consisteth not in the abundance of the things that one possesses. Life is more than stuff. Here's what happens to us sometimes. We get so worldly-minded until we, we get this mindset. We, we value people by the stuff that they own. Oh, he's, he's one level here of, of uh, society because he has this or he has that or he lives in this part of town. He has a house like that or he drives a car with the, all these status symbols that we have. Folks, that's not life. Several years ago, there was a bumper sticker. It used to say, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> I laugh at that. If I was making a bumper sticker about toys, I'd say, he who dies with the most toys is dead. <laughs> it's, it's just that simple. <laughs> you don't win because of what you got. You, you don't win because your house is bigger than somebody else's. You don't win because your car is a better status symbol than somebody else. I mean, listen, folks, there are going to be some people who drove Yugos that are going to have bigger crowns than some people who drive Rolls Royces. The stuff in this world, in fact, I want to leave you with this conclusion, and I want to put it up on the screen. Storms can only damage the temporary. They cannot destroy the eternal. Glory to God. Somebody ought to give God some praise for that. 
You can take all this stuff. Fact is, you're going to leave all this stuff behind anyway. You say, oh, my goodness, the people that lost this and lost that and lost the other, all that stuff's temporary. It's temporary. You're not going to play with it forever anyway. You're not going to live in it forever anyway. At, at some point, you're going to leave it. And the fact is, none of us know when we're going to leave it. We just, we just don't know. Can I, can I make the suggestion that you hold on to the things of this life lightly? Just don't, don't get a big grip on it. If you get too big a grip on your stuff, it'll wind up controlling you. And, 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 and you'll, your whole emotions, your feelings, and everything else will be because of, of, of your stuff. And yet I've got some stuff that I don't want to lose, but I'm here to tell you this morning, what I got on the inside of me that you can't take away from me is much more valuable to me than the stuff that you can take away from me. Amen. Because the stuff that you can take away from me, it's temporary anyway. I'm going to leave it behind one of these days anyway. So it really, what does it matter, my goodness alive, if I've got a hold, if I've got a hold of the eternal, Jesus said he's going to see that I make it to the other side and there's a crown of life that's laid up for me, Paul said, and not for me only, but to all those also that love his appearing. Glory to God for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. You can't lose if you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to God. Stand with me, please. I want the prayer team to come. How many are familiar with the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? You, you remember that hymn? Perhaps you know the story behind that hymn. But just in case you've never heard, let me, let me tell you. It. The man that wrote that song is named Horatio Spafford. And it came out of a tragedy in his life that he wrote that beautiful, beautiful hymn. In fact, Horatio experienced a lot of tragedy in his life. He had a son, two years of age, that died and really devastated the family. And those of you who've lost a child, you know what that's like. Then Mr. Spafford was quite a wealthy guy. He'd been an attorney and an, and an investment um, wealthy man. He had invested heavily in real estate in Chicago. And in 1871, the great Chicago fire destroyed everything that he owned in the Chicago area. And it ruined him financially. And what little business interest here that he had left was destroyed in 1873 when there was a severe economic downturn that caused him to lose some more. The only investments that he had left that were worth anything was a little bit in Europe, and he planned to travel to Europe with his family. In fact, he bought a ticket on a cruise liner for his entire family, him and his wife and his four daughters, to go to Europe. And at the last minute, there was a, a financial crisis kind of a thing that his attorneys felt like that he, he, had to, he had to stay and be at this meeting, had something to do with the Chicago fire that had taken place earlier. 
And so he had to send his wife and daughters on ahead, and he stayed back for this meeting and was going to meet them later. But the ship that his wife and four daughters were on was struck in the middle of the ocean by another ocean liner, and his four daughters were killed. His wife somehow miraculously managed to escape, but she sent him a telegram, and the telegram simply said, saved alone. So Mr. Spafford got on the next ship, and he met his wife, and he had the captain of that ship to show him where that ship had gone down that took the lives of his four daughters. And the captain showed him as near as he could tell where that happened. And Horatio Spafford standing there, grieving with his wife, looking into that deep, dark ocean beneath whose waves entombed four daughters. He took out a pen and began to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You know the chorus, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul, it is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. I love this. There's six verses to that song. I love the sixth verse. It says, and Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet shall sound and the Lord shall descend. Even so. Well, with my soul. Jesus said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? We look at television and our hearts break for people that have lost nice houses and nice cars and nice stuff. I'm sad for them too. But all that stuff can be replaced. My concern is, was it well with their soul? Was it well with their soul? Is it well with their soul? Listen, listen. (laughs) Don't let this stuff control you. If the storms take it, the storm is not the end of the story. The storm is not the end of the story. The end of the story will be good. You see, when God writes a story, the end is always good. His story is always good. Read the end of the book. We win. Read the end of the book. We win. When God writes a story. So if in your life this morning, your story is not going good, know this. God's not finished writing yet. 
So don't take the pen out of his hand and say, no, Lord, I'll write my own story. No, 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 no. You give him the pen and let him finish the story. And when he finishes the story, it will be good. It will be good because God's stories end well. Amen. They end well. Somebody give him some praise for that today. They end well. And there's a verse over in Romans that says, when we're there in his presence, that all that we've gone through in this life that seems hard and difficult now won't even be worthy to compare with the glory that God is going to reveal in us. Won't even be worthy to, won't, won't even, what you've gone through, I know it seems, and I'm not trying to minimize it. I know it hurts, and I know, I know it's, the storms are difficult, and I know, I know it's a struggle, but I'm going to tell you this morning, if you let Jesus lead you through this storm, he's going to take you to a place that when you look back, you'll say it's not even worthy to be mentioned compared with what God has done for me here. Glory to God. Glory to God. Go ahead and praise Him. Hallelujah. 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 Let's bow our heads for a moment. The altar's open. The altar's open. I invite you to come. I invite you to come all over the building. If you'd like to pray, come on. Whatever you may need, whatever your situation may be, come on. The altar's open. You may want to find a place just to pray, just you and God. Or you may want somebody to pray with you or for you. There are people that are here that will be glad to do that. They'll minister to you. If you need healing, if you're in a storm right now, you say, Preacher, I I just need to come this morning and say, Lord, I'm I'm willing to let you teach me in this storm. Whatever whatever you want to teach me, I'm I'm here. Let me me get the lesson and, and let me hold on to the end of this thing. God bless you. The altar's open while they sing. If you need healing, come, we'll pray for you. If if you're going through a financial struggle or a family struggle, come on, let's pray. God bless you as we pray.